first sermon of a new year, and I'm glad that uh, we're here worshiping this morning. And it's one of those things, we turn the calendar every year, December 31st becomes January 1st, and, and for me, one of the things that I enjoy about that is I read through the Bible every year, and I read through the Old Testament and the New Testament so that I'm wrapping up Malachi and Revelation on December 31st, which means January 1st, I'm back to Genesis and Matthew. And so every year, the beginning of January, I get to set my eyes on the very beginnings of Scripture. <clears throat> now, as an aside, if, if you are not in the habit of reading through the Bible, and I, I've been doing it for several decades. It has been a blessing in my life. It has helped me to understand who God is, who I am, what God's will is for, you, for me. If you haven't read through the Bible, there's no better time to start than now. There are wonderful programs that you can take a chunk a day, maybe a couple of chapters in the Old Testament, chapter in the New Testament, read through it, get your fill of God's Word, and go. If you are not a reader, there are audio versions so that you can listen to God's Word, a segment each day. And the challenge is, how can you possibly do God's will if you don't know God's word? How can you be a disciple of Christ if you don't know his commands? And, and those are important. They are not insignificant questions because there's going to come a day where we all find ourselves kneeling before the Lord. And he would be in, completely within his rights to say, why do you think that you are my follower. If we don't know what his word says, it's hard for us to say that I love you and follow you. And we will be held to account. So I would encourage you, if you don't know God's word, to get to know it. My 11th commandment. Some of you have heard me say this before. If I had an opportunity to write that one, would be thou shalt not kid thyself. So, if we claim to love Christ but won't devote time to knowing his word, don't kid yourself on where you stand. But anyway, back to the message at hand. Genesis chapter 1. How we approach God, and one of my hopes for this year, is that you will be deeper in your relationship with God December 31st of this year than you are today. How we think about God affects how we worship God. How we think about God affects how we pray to God. How we think about God affects how we obey God. Our knowledge and understanding of who God is will dictate who we are as his disciples. And so it's really important for us to go through the process of getting our arms around who God is. And, and I would submit to you that if we think that God is some distant and far-off being, we're not going to make an effort to draw near to him. If we think God is not interested in the little things in our lives, we're going to wonder whether or not something is significant enough to bring to his attention. If we think that God isn't everywhere, we might think there's a place we can go to hide from him. If we think that God doesn't know everything, we might delude ourselves into thinking that God doesn't know what we're thinking. 
And if we don't think that God is all-powerful, we might think that there are things that he is incapable of doing. The miraculous. Things where we see God's power in display. And as we think about who God is and where we ought to be in relationship to him, I think these first verses of Scripture give us a wonderful opportunity to explore the omnipotence of God, the power of God. We need to take it seriously. And we haven't. Last century, way back in the 1900s, more of you should be laughing at that statement than you are. (laughs) There was a theologian by the name of Rudolf Bultmann. And Bultmann believed that this Bible is filled with wisdom and knowledge morality and ethical teachings that the world ought to embrace. But there were some things in here that were difficult to comprehend for the enlightened mind, us scientific, reasonable thinkers. We would see things like the parting of the Red Sea, walking on water, talk of a virgin birth, And, of course, the enlightened scientific mind looks and says, those sorts of things don't happen in the natural world. And so, in Boltman's mind, while it was so important to get everybody to embrace this notion of love your neighbor as yourself, he didn't feel like there should have to be a choice between believing that was important teaching and believing that the miraculous occurred. Boltman's Mind was shaped by the Enlightenment teachers, those who put forth this proposition of scientific naturalism, a way of thinking about life, about this world that says that there is only the natural, and everything has a natural explanation. And if you have to go to the supernatural to explain it, it means one of two things. Either you don't fully understand what happened or you misinterpreted what happened. He set out to demythologize the Bible. In his mind, the authors of Scripture were much like the authors of Greek and Roman mythology, that they saw things taking place and because they lacked the scientific understanding, they simply said, well, that was the act of the gods. If you saw something you couldn't understand and you didn't have a god for it already, you just created a new god to address the situation. And so there was this mythology that got carried into scripture. And Boltman said in the age of enlightenment, that has no place because miracles don't happen. The reality is there's either an explanation for it naturally or somebody just got it wrong and they're covering their bases. In Boltman's mind, there was no miracle. And so that was so overarching that it infiltrated the minds of scientists even up to the brilliant mind of Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, when he was creating his theory of general relativity, built into his theory a cosmological constant. Because as he was running the numbers, he kept finding that 
the outcome didn't suit his understanding, and in fact, the Enlightenment understanding, that the universe is static, that it's always been, it's eternal. And so he created a fudge factor, the cosmological constant, so that however you ran his theory, it always came back to a static universe. But why did he do that? Why was it so important for the enlightened thinkers to come back to this idea of a static, eternal universe? It boils down to one thing. If the universe isn't eternal, then it had a beginning. Beginnings scare scientists because you have to explain it. Now, consider that you drive past a hill every day for 20 years, and at the top of the hill, you see a boulder sitting precariously perched. Every day you drive past, every day there's the boulder. But then one day you drive past, and the boulder's no longer up at the top of the hill, but it's down to the bottom. You instinctively know this. The boulder did not decide that night, I think I'll roll down this hill. Something caused it to roll down the hill. And you could set your mind to trying to figure it out. And maybe somebody was up there pushing it. Maybe there was this ferocious windstorm. Maybe there was an earthquake. Maybe there was a downpour of rain that finally eroded the rocks in front of it to a point where it could no longer hold up the boulder and it rolled down. The point is you don't know, but what you do know is the boulder didn't cause itself to roll down. Something acted on it. And at the heart of that understanding, the enlightened mind, the rational thought, became what's known as the Kalam cosmological order. The theory is this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. And when Einstein had to finally face up to the fact that there was a big bang, that the universe was expanding, which meant that it at one point had been one singular point, that it had a beginning, he had to admit that he was wrong. He had to admit the greatest failure in his scientific endeavor was trying to make the universe static, his cosmological constant. He got it wrong because he didn't want to have to explain a beginning. But the Bible and the very first words of Scripture let us know what happened. In the beginning, God. There was nothing, and then there is everything. And it's not inconsequential that these are the opening words of Scripture because it introduces us to a reality that all we experience here is a creation for which there is a creator. And if all that we experience that came about at the beginning of the universe, space, time, matter, and energy, was created, then the creator has to be greater than that, outside of those things, far more powerful than we can ever imagine. Because this God said, let there be light. And there was light. The massive, nearly inexplicable 
strength of God. How we think about God affects how we worship him. And it may seem strange to you, but I want to turn your attention to the book of Job to understand this. Because Job, if you remember the story, is being picked on by Satan because God points to him as perhaps the man on earth who best understands how to worship God. And so God allows the devil to do unspeakable things to him, destroying his family, killing his family, destroying his wealth, ultimately removing his own health, turning Job into this miserable wretch of a man, so awful that his wife finally says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? That's what Job is subjected to because he was a faithful worshiper of God. But what we see take place as Job is enduring these sufferings, as he's trying to figure out how he should act with God, Job says these things in chapter 23. He says, even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If I only knew where to find him, If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. After going through the trials and tribulations, the suffering and the pain that Job was enduring, his his concept of who God was had some issues. One... He thought that he had every right in the world to go and plead his case before God without realizing that God already knew every possible word that he might utter in his defense. Job also assumed that God was nowhere to be found, not realizing that God was always nearby seeing and understanding everything that he was going through. Job's suffering blinded him to some of the truths about who God is. God shows up. God answers the call. But God does not show up to defend himself. God does not show up to answer every question that Job has. It's very instructive to us what God does in response to the suffering that Job is going through. Hear his words from Job 38. So then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were the footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set the doors and bars in place, when I said this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Job went thinking that he had a different standing. Job went thinking that God wasn't paying attention. Job went before God with a misconception about who God was and who Job was. But being confronted not with the answers to his questions, but rather with a fuller revelation of the power of God, the creator, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. Listen to how Job responds. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My my ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. All of Job's complaints, all of his concerns melted away when confronted with the reality of who God is. It was no longer about him getting answers, but more about him realizing that God's God. And God's going to do what God's going to do. And, and I would suggest that unless we embrace this magnificent notion that God is truly the creator of all that is, we're not going to worship him Rightly, Job found the power of these first words of Genesis lived out with God's questioning of him before him. What an awesome privilege he had. We have the privilege of reflecting on Job's words, reflecting on God's words and what God has promised. It's our responsibility to spread the gospel. It's our responsibility to tell people about the magnificence of God, his goodness, his love for us, his son, Jesus Christ. And the question that is battered about is, where do we start? If we're trying to explain to somebody about the need for salvation, where do we start? The obvious and correct answer is it depends on where the person that you're talking to is in their relationship. But I would suggest to you that all of us would do well to start at the very beginning. To go back to this notion that the God that we are called to love and serve and obey is a God so powerful beyond our imagination. A God so all-knowing that we can't fathom it. A God so present, that we can never escape him. When we let our mind go back to the God who is the creator, then all of a sudden we realize that miraculous events like forming a man in the dirt and breathing life into him, parting of the Red Sea, a virgin birth, a resurrection from the dead, aren't 
miracles that we can't get our arms around. Because if we accept first and foremost that there is a creator and something seems to violate the natural law, surely we must realize that the one who created natural law can put it aside for his own pleasing when it comes to that. There is no greater miracle than to create all that is simply by speaking it into existence. For us, why is that important? I want us to go deeper in our faith. I want us to embrace more fully who God is and who we are. And I promise you this. Some of you in this upcoming year are going to have the most challenging year of your life. And it may be because of things that happened to you or it may be because of things that happened to those who are closest to you. But you will experience deeply challenging moments this year. And it is right when that happens to cry out to God in prayer. And so if it just turns out that your sister is battling with cancer, cry out in prayer. If you lost your job and you don't know what comes next, cry out to God in prayer. If you're fearful of losing your home to foreclosure or fire or some other devastating event, cry out to God in prayer. If you have a child stuck in the grips of addiction or some other sin that's keeping them away from God, cry out to God in prayer. Even if your marriage is in tatters, cry out to God in prayer. If you are engulfed in darkness to the point where you see no other way out and you think the most reasonable thing to do is to end, cry out to God and pray. And when you're doing that, cry out to the God who created all that is because there is nothing too big for him, there's nothing too small for him. There's no place he won't go because he's everywhere. There's no situation that you can envision him not being there because he is with you always. If he knows the hairs in your head, he knows the thoughts in your heart. And he's going to be there. Our challenge, of course, is when things don't go the way we want them to go. Romans 8.28 is a powerful reminder of that because it says, in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When we reflect back on the first few verses of scripture, we see that the God who is working for our good is the God that created everything. And so we have to allow for the possibility that what he is doing may not be what we call good but is good. It causes us to put our faith in him and not in ourselves. Have not faith in your own heart, but faith in God and his. Things aren't going to go the way you want. Things were not going the way Job wanted. His life was devastated. But he was presented with God the creator. And his response was, to bow down in obedience, to repent in his heart and accept God as God truly is. My friends, my brothers and sisters, 
I don't know what this year holds, but I am confident of this. Things aren't going to go the way you want them to sometimes. You're going to be confronted with that. And when you are, how do you respond? Cry out to God and pray. But then trust that the one that you cried out to already knew it was on your heart before you even formed the words in your mouth. Already knew the pain that you were feeling before your nerves told your brain that you hurt. The God that we worship is so big and magnificent and powerful that even the smallest detail in your life does not escape him. This year, as you set about to worship God, worship God as he is. Worship him rightly and trust him with whatever your life will face. There is no better place to place your trust than in the God of Bible, exposed in just those first few words, in the beginning God created. Trust him, folks, would you please? And that's enough, says my brother general. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your overwhelming grace. We thank you for the fact that even when we don't know what is best and right for us, you do. And we thank you that even when we think we know what is best and right for us, you are patient and you are kind and you are love. Father, as we set about the events of this day, the upcoming week, whatever this year may bring, may we go about it with a heart that truly understands who you are, your omniscience, your omnipresence, your omnipotence. May we remember that we worship a God who loves us despite all of our warts, despite all of our sins. You love us enough to send your son to die for us so that we might stand before you one day without blame. Father, may you be the God that we trust. And when faced with the things that are most impossible for us to handle, may we turn them all over to you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.